0: Welcome to the Seventh Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. And um, unavoidably, it is once again Valentine's Day. It just keeps happening. I don't know how many of you listened into the show last year at this time when we launched a full scale assault on Valentine romanticism, but I seem to have set a precedent for myself, and I thought I'd carry on in that very same contrarian spirit this time around. And for the purpose, I found myself a true anti sentimentalist to spend the hour with the writer and Stanford humanities professor, Terry Castle. She's got a new collection of essays out. It's entitled The Professor and Other Writings. And in it, Terry takes aim at various forms of misty self-deception, high-mindedness, and romantic folly, including her own youthful infatuations, her days as a fervent lesbian separatist, and her sexual awakening. Though that latter phrase, I suspect, is one she'd never use. It's just too trite for her. Terry Castle writes in that great tradition of the mocking essayist whose ultimate target is human self-importance, her own as much as anyone else's. And if all this sounds like too much disenchantment for you hearts and flowers types, well, let me just say that as Terry Castle's writing makes plain, and I hope this interview does too, self-knowledge has its own consolations, especially if you have a sense of humor. But enough with the reassurances. Let's get to the mockery. So um, what kind of person would write this, for instance, about a former lover? Mm -hmm. Not only was Celeste's body bonier and pimplier (laughs) than any I had encountered before, (laughs) she also seemed to have a sort of gingery red fuzz all over her. To move a hand up her knobbly spine was to brush this curious sheep pelt in the wrong direction, almost as if one were caressing an orangutan. In combination with Celeste's unusually wet, self-involved, and aggressive way of kissing, The overall erotic package was, in fact, fairly (laughs) sick-making.
1: She did have to have her name changed in the (laughs) manuscript. (laughs) Oh, how
0: sensitive of you. (laughs) But, But tell me about that attitude in the writing.
1: I guess in a sort of deep way, I feel very unromantic most of the time and unsentimental. And I also think that, especially for women, sex as a turnoff never gets very much play. We're so saturated with uh, sexual propaganda of all kinds, uh, straight or gay or whatever. And uh, I remember talking to a friend of mine, uh, an elderly lady, and we started talking about sex and she said, well, you know, I I don't really miss it because sometimes it's just awful <laughs> and I said, Yes, you're right. It is totally horrible. <laughs> so I'm just trying to add, you know, another perspective <laughs> by way of uh this poor woman it was a long time ago.
0: I was going to say that the kind of person who could write that about her former lover is also the sort of writer, in your case, who would write these things about herself. Glum and fat and respectful, referring to a photograph of yourself. <laughs> I was already a ghastly prig. These are taken totally out of context. Yes. Uh-huh. I was an overgrown, erotic baby, hungry, enfeebled, emotionally incontinent, a gaping <laughs> maw of need. And and my personal favorite here, during a meltdown. And all of these relate to an essay we're going to talk about in just a moment. Mm-hmm. There are many of these. Mm-hmm. I gulped for air and wrung my hands piteously. A thick and disgusting gray thread of mucus emerged from one of my nostrils and dangled there between us, lengthening slowly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, again, it's, you know, it's an eye for the unromantic.
0: (laughs) You're merciless uh, on others, but especially on yourself, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, I have a satiric point of view, but I'm my own target. People like it, actually, when you speak frankly. And if you speak in a somewhat mock-heroic way about yourself, um, whether it's something intellectual or something erotic uh, that you're talking about, I think it's very uh, comforting.
0: Well, in in offering up your own... um humiliations and, you know, failures from the past, which you do abundantly in in these mm-hmm. essays, yeah. Mm-hmm. So are you making a sacrifice of yourself for our sake?
1: Yes. It's <laughs> kind of Christ-like. I know you told me you were from the Christian broadcast news service, and now it's like interview. you're coming out here. Uh, <laughs> so yes, I'm a, a martyr to emotional truth.
0: Well, I'm wondering if it, if it took a while to, to get bold enough to do that with yourself, especially in a world that I think of, that is academe, yes. as being very image and status conscious. Uh, the prose usually has an eye toward one's reputation. Yes. And talking mm-hmm. about misadventures yes. and you know, meltdowns fiascos. and sexual fiascos. Not the sort of thing that an insecure academic would write. So, no. so what no. got you to the point where you could write all this?
1: Well, in the 90s, I began doing book reviews, particularly for the TLS in England. Times Literary Supplement. Yes, and the London Review of Books. And because I do see English literary culture, British literary culture, as being in some ways much more oriented towards a kind of spoofing and uh, comic irony, sometimes savagery. The London Review especially became my place where I felt more and more free uh, to explore little aspects of my own past. And then I found just an impulse to continue doing that. It was accentuated by an increasing... Disillusion on my part, a sort of disenchantment with the theoretical turn that had been taken in English departments, literature departments, and art history departments, and and so on. There was a kind of jargon that was became quickly very conventional, and um, I think also 9/11 did something to me. I mean, kind of like twisted something in my head, I suddenly felt like I need to write about the world that I Mm. live in Mm. and try to understand it Mm. uh, because uh, I had increasingly, and again, it's aging as well, feeling of transitoriness and mutability in life. So I realized I was in a position to do this um, because I have Tenure.
0: I was going to say that must come into it also. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) No, it's the ability to express yourself freely. Yes. Increases as your job position gets more secure. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It does have its complicated aspects for me because not all of my colleagues, for instance, think this is a respectable hmm. way to go with might things. might be unbecoming
0: to a yes. member of the humanities faculty. the department or
1: something. <laughs> yes, not quote-unquote serious enough, but I had just gotten so sick of seriousness. What cracks
0: me up about that is that um, the very same scholars might um, spend their whole careers writing joyously about writers who did exactly yes. that kind of writing.
1: Yes, the only thing I would amend there is Joyously. joyously. <laughs> be more enviously and resentfully.
0: (laughs) But there might be a Swiftian, for instance, and write about this great, you know, playful satirist. Mm -hmm. And yet they Mm -hmm. they would frown on a colleague writing.
1: Yeah, well, that, you know, that was part of what I found alienating in a lot of the cultural studies work of the 90s and into the 2000s. um, That so much of the Language and the the discourse had been adapted from liberation movements of different kinds, and you know the one that I kept running into in the early nineties was so called queer theory uh, and there was always um, this among the academics who fell into this an extraordinarily um, schizoid break between their self-conceptions and the language that they use, that they were being subversive, rebellious, transgressive, uh, transgressive, undermining (laughs) the hegemony of whatever. And turns out, you know, they all have BMWs and uh, live in nice houses and are tenured professors. And at a certain point, I just thought, this is absurd.
0: You just reminded me of, of something you wrote in one of your essays, um, an anecdote about uh, you're trying to get a position at another unnamed university, <laughs> oh, yeah. an esteemed university. I'm going to guess it's on the East Coast somewhere. And uh, you had to give a talk, mm-hmm. uh, which you did on, on uh, World War I, a favorite topic of yours and, and writers of the 20s. And um, you say this. The department Medusa, a steely queer theorist in bobber boots, decided I was wedded to the aesthetic and needed nuking at once. Mm-hmm. Wedded mm-hmm. to the aesthetic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> Frivolous, facetious, um, everything that the kind of moral seriousness of the project demanded. Mm. I didn't have any of that Mm. um, in this person's eyes. So so just being queer wasn't enough? Oh, no. God knows. (laughs) No. No, I mean, there, you know, there are, well, people I could name, but I won't, who, the fact that I'm a lesbian, the fact that I had a sort of poor hard-scrabble existence. Um, when you were young. Yes, when I was young. Uh, that um, that doesn't make me any sort of minority or any sort of subject for. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah. When I was the chair of the English department in particular, <laughs> um, I used to feel this as an enormous um, paradox um, that, you know, we had, people in the university who describe themselves as feminists and were always um, railing at me for not doing more than I was already doing to try to hire and support women faculty. And I was doing my best. But the fact that I myself was a woman didn't seem to figure in 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 the discourse. It's like, women are so disempowered at Stanford University, and statistics show this horrible dichotomy between the men and the women, and you never see a woman, and blah, blah, blah. And I would be sitting there, and, I, and it's like, what am I, chopped liver? <laughs> so, yeah, anyway. <laughs> I don't
0: know if this is it, another example of the sort of thing that could get you into trouble with, with some people, but uh, let's talk about the title essay from this book. The book is The Professor yes. and Other Writings. The title essay is The Professor. And this is uh, more about your love life. Yes. We talked about your love life. If you couldn't call it that. <laughs> <laughs> but let's, uh, let's start the, uh, this part of our conversation with a little piece of music here.
1: The woman in your life will do what she must do to comfort you and calm
0: you down and let you rest now Uh, the woman in your life she can rest so easily she does everything you do because the woman in your life is you so Terry tell us about this this song and how this relates to this very long sort of memoir or essay yes. called the Professor
1: yeah, yeah, well, I guess what I was hoping to describe was you know what used to be called a sentimental education that is one's kind of initiation into adulthood, and for me uh a huge part of that was intellectual and laying claim to a kind of position in the world through. An academic life, but it also meant coming out as a lesbian, which I had sort of realized in my teens. Uh, it was also the heyday of especially lesbian separatism. I was unbelievably gung-ho about this in 1974 and 1975, and um, this song was the theme song of uh, a radio station in Seattle, I think, a program on the radio station directed towards women and about feminism. And I had just turned it on at some point and heard it and was immediately besotted with the tune and the sentiment and the voice. Uh, I myself played the guitar, a uh, sort of uh, kind of warmed-over, folky kind of thing, and that was the era. And this and was the, the early 70s. I think the album by Alex Dobkin that, that has this song came out in 73. Okay. It was called Lavender Jane Loves Women.
0: She's patient and she's waiting and she'll take you home now the woman in your life. And, and this was at a time when you were finishing up college and uh, And headed to graduate school. Yes. And, uh,
1: I'd had two very unsatisfactory affairs at this point with women. Um, they were unsatisfactory, both of them, because the women happened to be straight, and <laughs> <laughs> something I think most lesbians are familiar with, and in fact have made similar mistakes along the way. Certainly, mm. so it was a it was a strange time, <laughs> and unfortunately, my ignorance combined with my ideological enthusiasm uh, led to some erotic disasters.
0: The the most disastrous of which is recounted in this essay, The Professor. At the time, I think this song gives us a little sense, though, of how how you now see yourself as being, um, though, a very smart and well-read young lady, (laughs) also very innocent in some ways. Vulnerable. Vulnerable, naive. Yeah. You were starting to recognize that you were a lesbian, and lesbians as a community were were starting to recognize themselves. This music was sort of their... Yes, definitely. This was their incidental music, you describe it as uh, now, in the uh, from the mocking vantage of your later years, yes. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as ultra-saccharine lyrics about waterfalls, women's hair, and kindly gym teachers.
1: <laughs> yes, Miss Davis. I remember Miss Davis. <laughs> to this day, I remember playing second base, and I was extraordinarily inept, as in anything athletic, but I... Jumped up and caught a line drive um in motion while Miss Davis was watching me and that was like one of the high points of my adolescence because uh, <laughs> she was clearly a sort of butch specimen <laughs> um but awfully sweet, and I adored her so
0: <laughs> did you have a crush on her too Yes. <laughs> Now, the reason I I said on her, too, and this gets us right to the um, right to the heart of this essay, the professor, is that this is this long memoirish essay is about a crush, a head over heels, Mm -hmm. infatuation, Mm -hmm. disastrous that you had with a um, charismatic, 20 years older than you, professor.
1: Closeted woman professor.
0: A superstar, though, in her own fashion. Yes. A rock star. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you, yeah. young thing that you were, just emerging from adolescence.
1: Yes. I was smitten You were smitten. from the moment I laid eyes on her. And she knew it. Oh, yes.
0: And she contrived yes. it. Yes. Yeah. But, but she did this to people. She attracted young women uh, yes. and collected them. Yes. And, uh, yes. you know, yeah tossed them aside when yeah. she was done with them, as she did yes. with you, very, very yes. quickly. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, she was a kind of um, predatory type of person. Mm-hmm. Um, very... Like a crocodile, almost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you could say that, yes, yeah. Um, no, she just, uh, I think, I don't know what had happened to her um, psychologically, but something had along the way and she seemed to almost enjoy the secrecy of her sex life and she was quite reckless in a number of ways uh and and this was an absurdly brief relationship given how it has resonated in my own life for 30 years Mm -hmm. or so, but it did begin as this sort of ultra exciting sort of secret affair. Um, but it began to break down very quickly because, uh, at a certain point into our relationship, she seduced the 18 year old daughter of one of her colleagues, uh, actually one of my professors, (laughs) uh, and then, uh, About two weeks later, uh, another young woman who was uh, an English major uh, at the university, and she was, I think, 21 or two, And I don't know, I just went crazy in the end.
0: It was pretty clear that you'd become redundant.
1: Yes, yes, or hadn't been that important to her in the first place. Though
0: she gave you that impression that you were the one and only, that you were really, really special. Yes. And, you know, you felt, you know, acknowledged in a way that was really, really powerful. Yes,
1: I did. Um, And I was awestruck by her, too, because she was very successful. And she'd had this glamorous um, thing in her past that she had been a, a, a folk singer and made records in Greenwich Village in the 60s and so I this to me was just like catnip or something I just I couldn't believe this um and I'd become at that point a little bit disillusioned by uh well what we all used to call in those days the women's community um which was actually a Sort of sanitized term for the lesbian <coughs> community, uh, and I'd found them. I'd started to already feel that the the norms in that little sub world uh, were too restrictive for me, and I found a lot of the. Um, political stuff, uh, very humorless and, um, realized that I actually did like men a lot too. And this was the period in which you weren't allowed, not erotically. No, 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 no. So, but you know, probably my closest friends mostly (laughs) are male at this point.
0: So, um, in fact, you say, um, We're going to get away from the essay for a moment, but you said the real love that dare not speak its name is that between lesbians and straight men. Yes, I think
1: that's true. I mean, well, you know, sports is a great bond there. Uh, I have a friend. um, Tools. Interest me. Yes, exactly. Sort of like handyman kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes. And then trying to understand women is like another deep bonding um element. Uh now it's interesting to me that this relate a lot there's been a lot of discussion that I have run into over the years of gay men and straight women and uh, the the sort of not very nice sw- uh, slang term being the fag hag. Uh and that relationship has been analyzed and depicted and uh a lot of the time, and I think there definitely is a kind of um, opposite version.
0: <laughs> Let's get back to the professor for a moment longer and um, talk about the fact that um, you titled Essay the Professor. Yes. And you're interested, among other things, in the way she was a kind of teacher, uh, however incredibly painful a lesson. Mm. Yes. what What did, what did yes. she teach you by breaking your heart?
1: well, it sounds grim and bleak, which is, I think, why I have to kind of make fun of myself and it and everything and life. I mean, uh, life is not very pretty. And uh, this this was a shock to the system, uh, to me, that, that was life-changing in the end, that a lot of the things that you admire are drawn to, uh, desire, love, uh, they can be very untrustworthy. And it's, I think it's more or less a kind of luck of the draw, uh, whether you end up in a relationship with, with someone who is decent and kind and responsible, a first really meaningful, Mm -hmm. passionate Mm -hmm. relationship, Mm -hmm. Uh, And especially if it's a same-sex relationship, I think it has enormous emotional importance that is magnified, in a way, by the social stigma, especially in the 70s when you you couldn't even really mention it. Um, Lots of lesbians I know have had affairs and flings and... Uh, serious crushes on teachers. And it is actually part of the subculture, I think, uh, myself, especially before one could be out of the closet. I think it was a kind of, um, in some ways, an initiation rite for a lot of women of my generation. And that these uh, sort of older women, younger women, and I think it's probably true, too, with gay men, sort of older man, younger man. These kinds of relationships had a very interesting and, I think, powerful uh, socializing aspect to them. You, you sort of began to see yourself as part of a larger social phenomenon, which even though hidden um, had a history to it, um that was part of the teaching mm. too it's like that that yes this was this could be a life a life's work in a yeah. way <laughs> <laughs> let's, homosexuality let,
0: let's jump in and clarify also that you were both adults you were 22 yes uh so it was a situation of a younger and somewhat older Pair of consenting adults. Yes, it was, and that there weren't any academic um, bylaws in in those days and on that campus against no. a faculty member and a graduate student like yourself having or any, any. A relationship. Um,
1: it was it was really the the sort of beginning time of affirmative action mm-hmm. and universities establishing affirmative action offices and that kind of. Institutional development was often linked with the beginnings of a discussion about sexual harassment, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. though it wasn't until some years later that people really began to talk about it between persons of the same sex right uh, I mean
0: the expectation would be this that this is something a male professor yes, would do to a female student yes yes you know yeah,
1: and that uh, that was sort of notoriously had been going on and no doubt still goes on. I I, I wanted
0: to clarify a remark I made earlier uh, when I said uh, a couple of quotes about yourself that they would uh, crop up in an essay we were going to talk about. This is the essay, The Professor, and the quotes were when you described yourself After your heartbreak, uh, as an Mm -hmm. overgrown, erotic baby, hungry, enfeebled, emotionally incontinent, (laughs) a gaping maw of need. And then the meltdown I described, I gulped for air and wrung my hands piteously. A thick and disgusting gray thread of mucus emerged from one of my nostrils and dangled there between us, lengthening slowly. That was... um, that was a breakdown you had while trying to take an exam, a very yes. important graduate school exam. Yes, and... I,
1: I was. It was an essay exam and um, it was right as my relationship with the professor was imploding. And I knew about the two other young women and I just lost it. I mean, I, I was trying to write my exam and uh, I started Kind of trembling and sweating and freaking out, and I had a, just like a full blown panic attack. So. You make it almost comical
0: in mm. in the writing of it, mm. but it uh, is one of those hideously awful yes. moments in yeah. life. Yeah. Um, when did you write this essay?
1: Over this past year.
0: So it's very recent. It's very recent. It's really recent. fresh. In, yeah. in order to write it, you had to go back to your old journals, which yes. you wrote copiously, yes, <laughs> and plow through them. Yeah. <laughs> Was it hard?
1: Yes. Uh, well, I mean, how could it not be? Because you see your younger self um, and just want to cringe uh, <laughs> some of the things, I mean, the things that I say about this woman and about myself and about life, um, it was also the last gasp in some ways of the age of Aquarius. And so there was still a lot of, uh, well, in my case, not very serious, but definitely, you know, pot smoking and kind of meditating on Uh, I used to do the I Ching. Oh, and and astrology. Yes, all that kind of stuff, tarot things. And and I was quite absorbed in that. Uh, I mean, it often intersected, interestingly, with uh, literary things I was interested Mm -hmm. in, like romanticism Mm -hmm. or the poetry of William Blake or something, Uh, sort of the visionary and the hallucinatory. And so I was sort of a mixed up, Girl, <laughs>
0: at this point, uh, but as the, as the as the excerpts from your journals show, you were also sophisticated intellectually, and you had you were already developing a writing style. I could, I could I, say. Th- I think yeah. so, which yeah. was a smart yeah. and can I like throw out a term that may mm-hmm. be totally inappropriate, but smartly self protective writing style. I mean, I, yeah, it's
1: interesting, isn't it? I I um a number of people said to me at the time my teachers, that is, and they didn't read my journals, obviously, but they read my papers, and they said, the style is so much more authoritative in a way than you are in your own manner. And so it's almost as if the writing got to some place before I did, and I don't quite know how to understand that. Uh, It was definitely... Part of my disenchantment uh, of the time with the "quote unquote" women's community that I was already starting to feel a bit sardonic mm-hmm. about it, mm-hmm. and a bit, little bit Dorothy Parkerish or mm-hmm. something like this exactly, is yeah. this is too exactly ridiculous right. to exactly. to to pay a lot of attention yeah. to, yeah. and this is silly, and uh, so that kind of um, jadedness was always there.
0: That's exactly what I meant. Maybe the the term wasn't exactly right. But But in
1: my personal affect at the time and the way it felt to me inside, I found life terrifying Mm. uh, and relationships filled me with tremendous unease um, and doubt about myself. So, uh, yes... It's, you know, I guess I still feel a little bit today, like with this book, I I mean, I was giving a reading from it last night at City Lights and several of my colleagues were there and several of my students and and I thought, God, I should wear a paper bag on my head i i can't believe i'm going to be reading this aloud in front of people i know and <laughs> because there were some little uh quite revealing parts in in what I was reading, and a few what yeah you i still well I still <laughs> can't sort of believe that I did that, and it's sort of like I know it sounds uh It sounds self-deceiving somehow, or like, oh, you mean you really don't know how you did that? Uh." But, you know, it's like there's a part of me that comes out in the writing in a relatively uncensored way that does not correspond to my normal public style, I guess. Mm.
0: Well. Um, We were talking a moment ago about the the lesson, the hard lesson, uh, that uh, the the affair with the professor taught you. And I got almost the impression from the way you were talking about it that that one thing you took away was, I'm not going to be that credulous, that vulnerable, that worshipful again. Yes. And yet, am I wrong, but do I see just some suggestions of the same <laughs> dynamic.
1: I know what you're going to say. What am I going to say? <laughs> you're what... going to say in the Susan Sontag exactly, piece. Exactly, yeah. yes. Yeah. And this is a yeah. piece
0: um, that you wrote after Susan Sontag um, died. When was it? How many years ago now?
1: Uh, she died, I believe it was right at the end of 2004.
0: About a, a little over five years ago then. Uh, and you wrote, uh, um, you know, uh, it was not the typical admiring obituary. It was uh, it was a bit of a tell-all about your friendship with, with Susan mm-hmm. Sontag, who mm-hmm. and you weren't the only one. Writing about her uh, as someone who was very self-involved, yes, uh, you know, very status-conscious, difficult, difficult, rude, sometimes, yes, abrasive, abrasive, contemptuous, (laughs) imperious,
1: haughty, haughty, (laughs) imperious, all these
0: things. So, so I I, I trust your account, but wonderful, magnificent.
1: Well, well, you,
0: um, in fact, here's how you describe uh, the dynamic between the two of you. Sontag was the supremo and I the obsequious gopher. Um,
1: <laughs> so G-O-F-E-R, but but maybe I was the G-O-P-H-E-R as well.
0: <laughs> and, um, and and Susan Sontag was, um, as you describe her, a bedazzling now dead she eminence. Yes. And immediately <laughs> I think of the professor as also being yes. a bedazzling yeah. she eminence. Yeah. So, so you didn't yeah. completely um, you didn't completely Exorcise discard, it. exercise yeah. your weakness yeah. for a certain kind of,
1: yes. And there was to some degree a physical resemblance oh, and right. other mm. physical attributes mm. that were similar. Mm. Um, and also the same ambivalence about articulating her, at least the her homoerotic side, mm. uh, Speaking of Sontag, Susan
0: Sontag was yeah. was a lesbian. Didn't talk about it a lot, although the world knew. Well,
1: she wouldn't have used that word at all, and and she would say very firmly. I I don't like labels, but if I'm anything, I'm a bisexual. I'm bisexual. Okay, well, she so, shacked
0: up with Annie Leibovitz. Yes, right. It, right. Yeah,
1: right. <laughs> Even Newsweek <laughs> has stuff about that. <laughs> so yes,
0: yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, this time, really, uh, in terms of infatuation, you went for the big time. I mean, uh, Susan Zontag was about as uh, big Glorious. an intellectual star as you could.
1: For my Fine. for my for my generation, sort of coming of age intellectually in the seventies, she was huge.
0: And are you telling the truth when you write that you read her famous essay "Notes on Camp," which is a pretty challenging essay, like most of her essays, <laughs> when you were nine years old?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I well, if I'm making it up, I I don't know at this point. Uh, I think I did. I I mean, I I know I read it at a freakishly young age, and nine might be a slight exaggeration. And I feel like even if it isn't true, it should be true. And it was one of the things that Sontag, when she liked me, that was what she liked. Mm. And so she, you know, she came to Stanford a couple of times and, uh, I was there and, and she'd say, and yes, look, here's Terry Castle. She read notes on camp when she was nine <laughs> years old. But not, she wasn't saying it really with a kind of a comic intention. It was more a sort of pleased, uh, pleased intention. <laughs>
0: Well well I'm sure you know her biography much better than I do but uh I'm remembering that she is a young girl yes uh, was kind of isolated yes very much in her mm-hmm. head mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. wrote precociously yes. and self assuredly yes. to an extraordinary degree yes like- if you
1: see the the journals that uh David Reef her son published last year uh they're very 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 edited down. Mm -hmm. Um, They cover a lot of ground chronologically uh, with with a lot of stuff missing that I wish we just had the unexpurgated or complete Mm journals of something. So we can find
0: some some evidence of ever being childish and and frivolous. Liking something (laughs) of dubious taste. (laughs) Um,
1: In any case, that Part of her comes through in these early ones, and uh, I was in a way sort of thrilled when I read those journal excerpts because they confirmed something that I had intuited about her, I think, that she was very, very lonely Mm -hmm. or had been in a profound way and that her imaginative world, her love of film, books greatness and genius in all of its forms. All these things were in part for her a way of of populating her world. And I think alleviating a certain dissociation or alienation from an immediate social context. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was, she, I think she was in high school in Los Angeles Um, I think she was born in Arizona. I mean, this is something that I can never quite take in uh, because she's such a quintessential New Yorker. I always felt there was a world that she was trying to escape from and because I have always felt that way about myself too. And similarly, the intellectual and the emotional energies were part of that escape desire. I mean, I wanted to be as different as I could be in some sense. I I don't believe that uh, homosexuality for most people is a choice, and it certainly wasn't for me, but it also was a trajectory that took me away along with my academic career from the kind of um, lower middle class, actually British background that I had come from, Mm. Though my parents were both British, uh, I was born in San Diego, and they they had been expatriate expatriates, and um, unhappily married. And I just wanted to get away mm. from the whole scene.
0: So, so you and Susan Sontag had some something in your backgrounds, yes. maybe in your sensibility that really yeah. was connected. But she had taken that road of and this is purely me talking, mm-hmm, not mm-hmm. drawing this from your your writing, but she believed her own hype to some extent. I think she... And, and I get I the sense she... that you don't believe... Yeah. I mean, that you don't even have any hype to believe at this point.
1: I'm sort of like, I just don't <laughs> think about it that much anymore. <laughs> I don't worry about it the way I used to.
0: <laughs> um, well, she was very concerned with, um, you know, her... Pos- position in the pantheon yes. and uh in into eternity I mean really
1: I often felt with her that a lot of her achievement um and she was just enormously accomplished and she mm-hmm. was brilliant and she was mesmerizing yeah. but a lot of it felt very self-willed as I am I am going to be great and she looked all around to see how other people had done it
0: well, all of our talk about Susan Sontag at this point might leave some people thinking that, um, you know, in retrospect and in this essay, that that you were looking askance at her, you know, or at least seeing her analytically and all of her weaknesses and her pretenses and all of that. But at the end of the essay, you you concede something that comes as a, a surprise, and I know it's intended to in the essay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that uh, after. Talking about how difficult she was, you then say, Her death also leaves me now with a profound sense of imploding fantasies, of huge convulsions in the underground psychic plates. And you say that a really fascinating observation about yourself, about your own house, that just about every book, every picture, every object in my living room, for example, I now see all too plainly has been placed there strategically in the hope of capturing her attention. Of pleasing her mind and heart, of winning her love. Yes, yeah. She yeah. never she visited never you. came to visit me. <laughs> but but are you serious that yeah. you know you had arranged some things in your house just in case someday <laughs> Susan Sontag dropped by.
1: Well, that would be one way of putting it. It's you know she was the fantasy arrival, the mm-hmm. the fantasy guest, mm-hmm. um, the person who you wanted to uh, seduce, if only Mm. intellectually Mm. or Mm. artistically or something. Mm. Um, And, uh, you know, I can't say she's the only person Mm. that I ever felt that way about. And and there are various replacements (laughs) (laughs) who have (laughs) subsequently appeared. Uh, But um,
0: at at this point, though, as as wise as you are, (laughs) is there anybody who could exercise that kind of, you know, Allure and mm. have that kind of heroic grandeur for you at this point? Mm. Dolly Parton? No, 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 no. <laughs>
1: um, not the same kind of thing, because it, it was a kind of adolescent mm-hmm. crush, though mm-hmm. it was intellectual. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those things only happen to you when you're young. Mm-hmm. And in a way, um, the relationship with the professor dates from the same... Era really, Uh, that was Sontag's heyday, uh, the later seventies, and um, so they're they are sort of linked imaginatively for me the the two very powerful women, Um, but it's all it comes out of that young part Mm. of me which Mm. I feel as I was saying earlier I don't feel that detached from, ultimately. Uh, the the mer- the membrane between past and present is quite permeable. Uh, and I can... I think music has this effect on me, too, and it can often sort of take me right back to these adolescent feelings, which is why when I played the Alex Dobkins song, the first time I heard these things, again... For thirty years, I basically wanted to start crying. It just the emotional pull or the the tug or something. So, uh,
0: was was very deep. Well, you mentioned music, so I thought I'd play another piece of music that will take us to another essay. This piece, we should say, is by Art Pepper, the alto saxophonist, the late alto saxophonist, often called a part of the West Coast jazz yes, scene. Yes, um, yes. Yeah. And this uh, piece of writing that deals with Art Pepper is called uh, My Heroin Christmas. Yes, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yes. Another one yes. of your essays. And in a way, it's, a, it's yet another story about a kind of infatuation, I think. It's, it's more mm-hmm. than that. Yes.
1: Yeah, yeah. As I say, music can take me mm-hmm. right, into these intoxicating places very easily. Mm -hmm. Um, And the title came from the fact that I was visiting San Diego and visiting my mother for Christmas uh, a few years ago. And I had come across Art Pepper's autobiography. Um, He actually, as I understand it, dictated it to his um, then wife, his third wife, He dictated this memoir uh, about being a poor kid from the Los Angeles area, um, discovering his musical genius, uh, beginning to perform with Stan Kenton and his orchestra and becoming a heroin addict along the way and uh it sort of goes on from there mm, and mm, i weave mm, elements from my mm. own life into it
0: yeah well, well um the 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 um autobiography of art pepper that you that you read during this christmas stay with your mom in san diego straight life the story of art pepper uh it's this very raw yes. accounting of his you know, life, his story life story and
1: his, his dissipation of all kinds. Yeah, this is uh, a
0: dope addict, uh, lover boy, lots of sexual stuff, uh, yeah. his time in prison, San Quentin yes. and all of that. Well, i got to say, I fall into this camp, uh, who you summarize really nicely in the essay. Mm-hmm. You say of us, my type. Now, wet blankets everywhere will be saying... This is all such a load of crap. The dope, the tattoos, the goofing, (laughs) the living without a belly button, which refers to some (laughs) surgery he had. Uh, The creepy redemption through a good woman. What a self-destructive and self-deluding bastard Art Pepper must have been. And what's up with you, Terry Castle, (laughs) that you claim to like this guy? So, I mean, this guy seems vain. Uh, I mean, I'm just going from the excerpts. I've never read the autobiography, so I'm going to be unfair probably. But he seems vain, you know, he seems... Like a Mister Stud, you know, <laughs> badass kind of guy. Yeah, I mean, you know? he was
1: extraordinarily good looking, and so that was <laughs> part of it. And you know, he, as he said, he liked to ball chicks. <laughs> so <laughs> 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 he's kind of a male lesbian,
0: in fact. <laughs>
1: uh
0: huh. Uh-huh. Very butch. Yeah. Uh, but you really, really, you know, there's a fell lot. for him.
1: Well, yes, um, it's part in a way. He's so honest. And it's always leavened with a kind of humor, and that's mm-hmm. exactly the combination that I like—being um, sort of candid and funny at the same time. Well,
0: is he being funny, and is there humor in his account of like con- planning to kill somebody at San Quentin? Just, well,
1: that's a, that, that's just to earn extreme. his stripes. Yes, you know? he 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 has some phrase for it. Um, he there was a. Sp- a particular wing of the prison that you went into if you this had the if center. you had murdered somebody yeah, and yeah. the usual murder mm-hmm. weapon he refers to as a shank mm-hmm. that is a knife mm-hmm. and uh he writes about how he uh actually had picked out somebody uh who he was going to knife to death. <laughs> but then he was released on on uh parole at just that moment, so it never happened. And yes, that is the most um absurd comment on my part, I guess, is right around <laughs> around there. Uh, somebody's date with the shank was not to be. Um yeah, I mean uh he inspires mixed feelings.
0: Well, you do uh confide at some point though after anticipating exactly what a guy like me is thinking throughout this essay is why yeah. does she like this guy right because you know?
1: he 's so bad
0: because he 's so <laughs> bad, but really, and will you say why I am obsessed with art pepper because he 's dead and i don 't have to deal with him yes
1: yeah, so it 's again it 's a kind of cordoned off imaginative relationship that may not have a huge amount of uh, sort of existential
0: <laughs> content, really. Um, but I, it, it seems to have, at least to, to read this essay, it seems to connect with something very, very deep that, that, that erupts into this story Yes, uh, from your past. Yes, yes. Which is um, another bad boy, you know, uh, masculine yes, figure. I, yes,
1: I had a stepbrother who was very wild and did many bad things. Well, you describe him as a acts. sociopath. Yeah, and he, he killed somebody. He, he killed someone. Um, it was ruled as self-defense, but he strangled somebody with his bare hands in a fight, and he was thrown out of the Marines and other enterprises. And then he killed himself. Or, or I think he was about twenty-one or two when he killed himself, and it. As I write in the piece, I feel that my stepbrother um, had no voice or he had no way of communicating except through violence. And there's just something about my stepbrother that puts me in mind of Art Pepper. Um, There's a little bit of a physical resemblance, but I see him as someone who had a similarly troubled life, but Pepper somehow transcended his own worst impulses. And I say at one point, I think he had both a literal voice. I mean, he could, he was very, very intelligent. And that comes across too. Uneducated, Mm -hmm. but extraordinarily intelligent Mm -hmm. and observant and insightful about people, and that comes through. His 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 self-articulation mm. in words mm. is just amazing. But mm. then, of course, he had this other voice, which was his Music. musical voice. Yeah. And he really, I think, by the time he died, understood what his life had been about mm. and what the core was there. And that's something that I revere, when anybody can do that and but it usually comes out of some kind of suffering or um you know dismaying things that one has lived through um but I guess i you know I feel increasingly there isn't very much time left for any of us, and so why not try to speak the truth
0: this this essay um My heroine, Christmas, um, where I take it your heroine during this Christmas day was Art Pepper himself and his autobiography. Yes,
1: yes, yes. Yeah, I was reading and listening to him simultaneously.
0: Well, it ends with a moment of um, almost excruciating truth-telling, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if it was as hard for you to write as it would be for a lot of people, but you kind of hated your dead stepbrother. Yes, I did. Uh,
1: I was very afraid of him, and I was always afraid he was going to kill somebody in the family. I mean, I had taken myself thousands of miles away, and I was at Harvard at this point on a fellowship, but I would hear about it uh, from my mother mainly, like the latest disaster. Um, He was put in various foster homes, and then he would do something like, crash a car while intoxicated or rip up a couch with a knife and things like this. Um, And he was, um, he had indeed, I mean, this sounds cruel or awful, but he had a kind of bestial quality, and I was quite afraid of him. And so among other things, when he killed himself, which was uh, actually on Christmas Day, it was either Christmas Day or the day after, Um, and my mother uh, called me at a certain point and said, Jeff is dead, and he killed himself. Uh, Enormous relief that this person was no longer a threat to the rest of us.
0: Mm. Well, I'm I'm sure that that many, many, many people have had that experience of someone they knew, maybe even a relative, dying. Mm. And saying,
1: whew. What a blessing. <laughs> what a blessing. What a blessing. But you're
0: not supposed to say that. <laughs> Aloud. And, and you're probably not supposed to end an essay uh, on such an unredeemed note. Yeah. Now, Art Pepper redeems himself, as you say. Yeah. But your stepbrother. But this was pretty bad. Didn't. Yeah. Did that realization surprise you? Did that explode on you at the end of this this essay? in the course of writing it, the way it explodes on us, the Mm, readers? The reader. Um,
1: I don't really think so, Robert. I was always pretty clear on my feelings about him.
0: Were you clear that that was the direction the essay was going? Yes. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. What you write in this essay about Art Pepper, um, to those who might distrust this the storytelling of his, that even when an autobiographer is prone to distorting or embellishing the facts, it is still possible to locate some core emotional truth in the writing. Um, In your own writing, uh, your essays do tend toward self-knowledge, toward self-revelation. You know, you may start... That's the goal. Start with a nominal subject of one kind or another and end with some sense of discovery. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And yet... You ask of yourself in another essay where you're you're really addressing this idea of self examination of frying off the lid and looking at everything down in yes, there yes. and and also a process by which uh over the years uh as you've developed and matured how your your self image has shrunk <laughs> <laughs> you know with the more you look at yourself, the less heroic and the less you know uh, <laughs> The less less grand you seem, uh, but you write: Is there some very 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 embarrassing self knowledge I'm still missing? Mm,
1: yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. It's almost like uh, it's almost like I see myself as a like a character in a silent film or something, Buster Keaton or something, and and you don't know. It could be in the next ten seconds that you'll slip on a banana peel and look ludicrous to everyone, Um, or something you never expected can happen that will shrink you even further in the moral washing machine. So uh, I'm always aware of the pratfalls that uh, life makes available to us, as it were. Um, uh, I guess, you know, my biggest fear is the kind of the guilt of the autobiographer that someone will say, oh, that Terry House is so narcissistic. And, you know, I...
0: Even when self-flagellating. <laughs> yes, right.
1: But yeah, it's like, well, yes, the two things, one allows the other. Uh, uh, at least that's how it works in my psyche. But I I feel um, always um, vulnerable to that criticism, that this is simply a slightly more open and communicative version of my own self-absorption and that some people will view it with distrust, resentment, annoyance, um, whatever. Uh, Lots of people don't think you should make certain revelations. And, don't themselves as a habit, of course. I mean, they're people who are very secretive about themselves, Um, sometimes with no real reason, it seems to me. I think being gay has been, in my case at least, um, a kind of incentive to revelation. Um, And it's been, as it were, a theme in my life. And I was saying my, even in my early academic things I wrote, there was an autobiographical code to it that I can see. And it's been a, a matter of making that more and more and more explicit mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and letting go of whatever inhibitions are there. But also, you know, my goal has always been to, uh, At the same time, bring pleasure to other people. Um, So there is a kind of little madcap jester side that um, that gives me a lot of. I love making people laugh. Mm. So (laughs) um, uh, my students know this very well. Uh, But sometimes I sort of go too far, and I think even then it can be sort of too self-involved. So that's what I worry about. that I'm even more Lilliputian than I already think I am. <laughs> like, I always like that film with Lily Tomlin, the incredible shrinking woman, where she falls down the, the kitchen sink into the garbage disposal.
0: <laughs> well, well, maybe this uh, interview will do its part to shrink your reputation. Yes, further. further. <laughs> Thank you, Terry.
1: Thank you, Robert. This was lovely.
0: Terry Castle is Walter A. Haas Professor in the Humanities at Stanford University. Her latest book is The Professor and Other Writings. She's also a prolific mixed-media artist. One of her collages graces the cover of her new book. And you can see her work online if you just Google Terry Castle and Fevered Brain Productions. That's Terry Castle, Fevered Brain Productions. Give it a try. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next Sunday at noon right here on KUSP. And by way of closing today, I thought I'd end here with another piece of music that Terry Castle shared with me. Like the song we heard earlier, this is from what she calls her sapphic salad days. And this is again from that anthemic 1973 album of sisterly solidarity, Lavender Jane Loves Women by Alex Dobkin. I heard Cheryl and Mary say, there are two kinds of people in the world.